Wow, uh, I think um, I'm happy to be before you this morning. It's been a while. Um, Scott and I uh, just got back from General Assembly last week of the Presbyterian Church in America, and I will say that it went well. Um, and I thank you for praying for us, uh, if you remember that it was going on, um, because I, I do believe that um, our denomination is doing good work and I'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, go ahead and open up to Philippians 3 or unlock your phone or whatever you do, or if you've got it memorized, pull that up in your brain. We're going to be looking at Philippians 3, as you've seen in the bulletin, Adam said. Um, Philippians is a fascinating letter to me. While many of Paul's epistles are those of warning, such as Galatians, where he's handling the heresy of the Judaizers, or really ecclesiology-based, how the church should work, like in First and Second Corinthians, Philippians is an epistle that we could generally put into the biblical category of the latest update from Michael Cody. Just like the letters that you receive from missionaries, Philippians includes a thanks for a gift, Implicit ask for some more, an update on how ministry is going, and spiritual insights that Paul has learned in his experiences. Paul's writing at the end of his life, probably from prison in Rome. He's waiting to die, actually. But he's writing this letter to a healthy church. There's not really much rebuke in here, it's full of encouragement to a church that is already strong in Christ. In chapter 1, Paul notes that they've been partners with him for a long time. He's confident in their spiritual state, and he's confident that Christ will bring that to completion. So what does Paul write to a faithful church? You may have heard Philippians called the book of joy, and it certainly is. Eight times, I believe it is, in the first two chapters, Paul tells them, to rejoice. But what do you tell a church that seemingly has it all together, that's rich in both material and spiritual wealth? Well, it's the same thing that you tell the track star who's leading the way at the end of the race, straining towards the finish line. It's the same thing that you say to the striker who's broken through the fullbacks and is about to make the winning goal. Sorry for the soccer reference because I'm not going to try to act like I understand football. Well, you tell them, you say, come on, keep going. You're almost there. This is for the win, and it's going to be awesome. And that's what Paul is telling the Philippians. Go ahead and rejoice because you have won this match, and Christ has won the entire season for you. Rejoice because your suffering is going to pay off. Rejoice that although I am about to be put to death, we share in the inheritance of eternal life. Remember uh, that the Philippian church didn't receive this letter as we have it today, all nice and bound up in true tone leather with cheap pages, or translated from zeros and ones onto your phone screen. The church at Philippi, of course, if you remember from Acts, uh, was probably started with Lydia's conversion, who was a seller of purple. She was super rich, basically. So the Philippian church probably had a lot of rich, literate people. But most likely, there were more people that couldn't read. And so they would get together in their assemblies and listen to these letters read to them. 
So I want you to imagine now that you're in Philippi and you're hearing this letter read to you. You're hearing rejoice in the Lord, keep going. And maybe you're one of those people that sits back and thinks, and I do want you to hear this in a positive way, not cynical or sarcastic. Yeah, my walk is going well. The Lord has been good to us. He has begun a good work in us. We're mature in our walk with Christ. This is great. Let's sing the song of response here, the benediction, and call it a Sabbath. And again, I'm not going to say that that's really a wrong response because Paul is telling the Philippians to rejoice and think those things. But maybe you're more like me, thinking as a self-conscious, all-too-internally-processing, neurotic kind of person. Yeah, I'm not so sure, Paul. I mean, did, do you actually mean to send this letter to Philadelphia and not Philippi? Um, I've still got lots of remaining sin. And right now, uh, maybe I feel like I've got more than when I started. Paul has one thing to say to both of these people, though. It's a message of admonition. It's a message of comfort. And that is keep progressing in Christ. So let's pick up and read Philippians 3. And because I couldn't find a better way to split this all up, we're going to read the whole chapter together. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the scripture that you have given us today. I thank you for preserving this letter from Paul to the Philippian church uh, for these two millennia. I thank you that your word being heard and preached today is alive. It is active. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you will be active even today and that the people hearing this sermon will hear a better one than the one that I preach. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if Paul's instructions to the Philippians, and indeed to us, is to keep progressing in Christ, there's one question that I want us to answer today from this text. What does progress in the Christian life look like? How do we know we are progressing? How do we know if we're not? We'll answer that with three questions this morning. I said there was one question. Now I've given you about six. Um, so the three questions we're going to answer this morning are, in our progress, what are we leaving behind? What isn't progress in Christ? And how do we make progress? Let's first consider that the word progress implies that we are leaving something behind. We are moving forward, straining forward, pressing on, as Paul says. We see that Paul forgets what lies behind and progresses and moves forward. So what is Paul leaving behind and what by his instruction are we also to leave behind? In progressing in Christ, and here's the answers to your little uh, notes there, we are leaving behind our sin and our righteousness. Include those air quotes. I'll start with the easy one here. If we are progressing in Christ, the first thing behind us that we forget is our sin. In a passage that uses a similar racing analogy in Hebrews 12, the preacher calls us to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, so that we may run with endurance the, set, the race that is set before us. So when we talk about leaving behind sin, we're talking about two things in, in the traditional reform doctrine that we're leaving behind the active sin of the person that has died in Christ, and we're leaving behind the indwelling sin that will plague us until we reach glory. In our progress in the Christian life, though, the second thing that we begin to leave behind is any supposed righteousness, which we may think that we have obtained by our obedience to the law of God. If you've been coming to Redeemer for a while, this point is not going to be anything new to you. And I say with Paul that to say the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul addresses, of course, his righteousness in verses 4 through 7, where he instructs the Philippians to put no confidence in the flesh. He was born of the chosen people of God, of the Pharisees. If you don't know what the Pharisees are, they were basically the most holy guys. They put laws around laws around laws so that they didn't break the law of God. And Paul was one of the best. In his zeal for God, he imitated those holy men of the Old Testament who put to death those who were a stain upon the nation of Israel and upon their religion. Before he met Christ, Paul was a rising star within his sect of the Pharisees. It was at his feet 
that the murderous persecution of Christians began with the stoning of Stephen. But his meteoric rise in the Pharisees was cut short by seeing Christ on the road to Damascus, where by seeing him he saw the worthlessness of everything he had gained. Well, even Paul, in light of the gospel, sees his earning of righteousness as misplaced According to the system of righteousness that was held by the Pharisees under the Old Covenant, he was doing pretty great. What about us? In a similar way, do we not have a system by which we understand that we are justified by God? I have a warning about this, and I want to be really careful, so I'm going to obviously read this. I want to be correct and precise as possible. The faith that you have, check it and question it. Is your faith in our system of doctrine, or is it in the Christ to whom that system points? You see, Paul was doing all the right things by which the grace of God would be conferred to those under the law. We here today are participating in those things by which the grace of God is conferred to us through hearing the word, through singing, uh, when we partake of the sacraments. So question yourself, is your faith in that system or the Christ that it points to? So just as with our sin, any faith that's that's in the system, that's in um, anything written by man, and not in the word himself become flesh, Christ Jesus, should be forgotten and left behind. I'll let this lead us to the next question we have. So what what isn't progress in Christ? There's a lot of ways we could answer this. So I want to just take a look at a couple things that we can see as not necessarily signs of progress. Um, So the first thing here I'd like to point out as not being a sure sign of progress is simple adherence to the law. Put another way and maybe more clearly, progress in Christ cannot be marked only by outward obedience. Perhaps you've known these people or perhaps you have been this person. You've never known a day that you haven't known Christ Your prayer life is full. You have coffee and quiet time every morning at 5 a.m. You fill the seat every Sunday. Perhaps if you're really faithful, you made it to Bible class this morning, and Wednesday night study or Tuesday morning for you women is a no-brainer. Remember, though, that these are the kind of people that Paul is writing Philippians to. They're the ones who have partnered with him since the beginning. And he still writes to them of his pedigree and talks about his self-righteousness. And he talks about that if anyone were to have confidence in the flesh, it would be him. Remember also what he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith to remove mountains, even if I deliver myself up as a martyr, All of this is worthless without love. If you're a little uncomfortable, I am too. So I want to be clear here. Obedience is a fruit of progress. 
But obedience outside of a sincere love for Jesus Christ is not true obedience at all. And if you're looking toward your own obedience and your own Christian disciplines to drive and be the fuel for your progress in Christ, if your faith is in your own good works, then you may find that you're not progressing at all. So that's the first thing under there, um, is our simple or blind adherence to the law. The second thing that is not a marker of progress is regression. Okay, the antonym of the word. Thanks, James. But by regression, I don't mean times in your life where a particular sin has reared its head. Or I don't refer to a time in your life where you don't feel as holy or saved. I want to share with you question 81 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, which has been a great comfort to me. It asks this, are all true believers at all times assured of their present being in the estate of grace and that they shall be saved? The answer, assurance of grace and salvation not being of the essence of faith. That means that since believers are not guaranteed assurance as a fruit of faith, true believers may wait long before they obtain assurance. And after the enjoyment thereof, may have it weakened and intermitted through manifold distempers or depression, sins, temptations, and desertions. Yet are they never left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. Note, Christian, that there will be times in your life when your assurance of salvation may seem completely gone. When you experience so much suffering all at once that you question, where is God? When temptation and sin is around every corner and you think to yourself, was I ever saved at all? If this is where you are now, know this. God has not abandoned you. I thank God that my salvation is not dependent on how saved I feel. Our feelings are no place to put our faith. But Jesus Christ, the solid rock, is where we put our faith to know that our salvation is secure. And if you found that you've hit rock bottom, rest assured that you have hit Christ. So that's kind of a long aside to say this is not what I'm talking about in regression. What I am talking about is the big church word, apostasy. Paul brings this up in verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. It's possible that the people Paul is talking about here are just worldly people. I think it's more likely that these are people that the Philippian church knew. Possibly Christians that the church looked up to. In 1 John, the apostle warns us of those people who went out from us but did not belong to us. Paul warns Timothy that in the last days, there will be those who abandon the faith to follow deceiving spirits and the teaching of demons. 
lest you start thinking about people you know, let's first consider ourselves. As Paul tells the Corinthians in his second letter, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. It's the Hebrews preacher who warns his audience, believers, again and again to hear the voice of Christ and repent or you will be like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and may never reach the promised land. This is plain in Scripture. There will be those among us, possibly even here, who sing with us, pray with us, sit in Bible class with us, who have been baptized and commune at the Lord's table with us, who are not united with Christ and who will not receive the blessings thereof. I understand that these are hard words. And trust me, I only speak them with great fear because Paul, through the Holy Spirit, first spoke them. But I want you to rest assured that if you heard these words, and you found yourself confessing the hardness of your heart and your sin in this area, God is faithful and just to forgive you. Moving on to the last point in the outline, how do we make progress? Well, the first step is what we just talked about, repentance and confession. Whether you find you have never truly believed or that you've believed for many years, the truest and first step of progressing in the Christian life is to confess and repent that we are not mature as we should be, that we are not yet who we were made to be in Christ, and that our progress has been slow and often set back by our own sin. Where do I see this in the passage? Well, it's in verse 15. And uh, I'll read the context here because I was really confused about this verse as I was studying. And the context helps. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, that is the resurrection of the dead, or am already perfect, but I press on to make that my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So verse 15, pay attention here. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So as I said, verse 15 was a little bit confusing to me because I was thinking, what, what way are the mature supposed to think? And what do you mean by mature? Um, well, to help out, um, and I'm not a Greek expert, and I don't think that in the Greek you have some secret super thing that you can find out that's not in our excellent English translations. The word here is teleos. It's from the root word telos, which you may have heard if you've done some Christian apologetics. Um, telios means perfect or mature. It's the same word that uh, Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells the crowds, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So really what Paul is saying here is, if you think that you're mature in Christ, 
then you'll realize that you're actually not mature or perfect in Christ, and that this is a process. Paul calls us to imitate him in this. And in imitating him and realizing we're not yet perfect, we are to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Moving on, by now, if you haven't tuned out my monotone voice, I hope you're asking, well, how do I progress in Christ? If it's not by simply doing good works and abstaining from outward sin and apostasy, how do I do it? You can fill in that last blank with see, know, and love Christ. As Christians, it is our secure hope that as we confess together this morning that we are God's. And as Paul says in chapter 1, God has begun and will complete his good work in us. And yes, guess what? That word complete there is from the same root word that we just talked about. And what is the completion of that good work? What does it look like? Paul says in verse 10 of our passage here in chapter 3, that progress in Christ is being more and more conformed to the image of Christ's death and resurrection. So putting this all together, to progress in Christ is to first realize that you're not complete or mature in him, but that he will make you complete. To die to your sin to the extent that Christ died for our sins and to live more and more as the truly new creation by his resurrection power. But you're not going to do it by your good works. You're not going to do it just by trying to stop sinning from your own inward willpower. I, like Paul, have been there. And I know many of you have too. Paul has shown us that those who would have us be conformed to the image of Christ through faithless and loveless obedience leave us with an impractical system of righteousness and a barren orthodoxy that will produce no fruit. You see, that's exactly what the false philosophers of our day, these Instagram, whatever, TikTokers, I don't know, I don't have TikTok. This is what they're peddling, that somehow, somewhere, deep inside you, you have everything you need to be complete and whole. You just need to actualize it. And I'll tell you right now that having grown up in this way of life, under the guise of Christianity, that it does not work. Just as nature abhors a vacuum, so do our hearts. Don't you know this from experience if you don't already know it from Scripture? Think about it with me. I'm going to use gossip as a pet sin, but take a millisecond to think about your pet sin. You finally get your gossip under control. You've really worked hard on not gossiping. Whenever you're tempted to gossip, you just remove yourself from the conversation or try to say something nice instead. So what happens? Another sin takes its place. You can try to get rid of it by reading your Bible. You can try to get rid of it by praying more. You can create excellent habits. And these are good things for Christians to do, by the way. I'm not saying not to do that. And yet, why, at the end of all this effort, do you still find that sin on the tip of your tongue? It is only through what Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection, 
isn't that a great sermon title? That we can progress. In his sermon, Chalmers preaches from the word what we know is true, that the true driver, the true fuel of progress in the Christian life has to come in and expel the vacuum left by trying to just stop sinning. But the vacuum left by, I'm just going to try to take the sin away. It, it cannot. The fuel that fills us, that fills that vacuum is love for God. It is not a love that we can drum up inside of ourselves. What does scripture say? We love him because... He first loved us. You know this already. Loving God isn't something we need to overcomplicate. It starts with seeing, knowing, and loving Christ. Whenever I lead the pastoral prayer, I try to pray that God would help us to see Christ. Because it is by seeing him that we know him. And in knowing him, we can love him. So I urge you to see Christ. See him born as a baby. Hands that had formed the universe and the stars in it reaching for his mother's comfort. See him as a young man going about his father's business, answering the questions of the leaders. See him homeless, destitute, revealing deep spiritual truths to a ragtag group of fishermen. See him seeking and finding and loving the outcast, the downtrodden, the dregs of society. See him before the Sanhedrin, blameless and silent, but speaking louder than his accusers. See him before Pilate, revealing his identity to that faithless and godless man. See him lifted up on the cross, bleeding and scourged, delivered for our trespasses. See him resurrected for our justification. See him whose name is greater than all other names, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, holy, 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 worshipped in eternity in heaven. See him at the right hand of God, interceding for you and pleading your case. See Christ, that you may know him, that you may love him. May that love empower you to make true progress in your Christian walk, to empower you to die more and more to your sin, and to live more and more as the brand new person you were made to be through his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I only have a simple request this morning. That you would help us to see Christ. That you would show him to us, Holy Spirit, through our brothers, through scripture, through your word lived out among your church. Empower us in seeing him, to hear his voice, to know him, to love him that we may become more like him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.